focused a lot of my time on understanding the millennial and the Gen Z generation. So, you know, just because they're very, very relevant to Nike's success, to Blue Nile's success, as well as to Foot Locker's success. And that sort of, um, you know, if nothing else, it, uh, it helps me communicate better with my kids, is what I always say. Welcome to Beyond High Street. My name is Jenny Derrick, and I'm the Dean of the Pharma School of Business here at Miami University. Today, I'm joined by Vijay Talwa, who graduated with, with a Master's of Accountancy back in 1993. So hi, Vijay, and thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast, Beyond High Street. Hi, Jenny. It's always good to be back in Miami, even if virtually so. So good to see you again. I've got, for the listeners who can't see me, I've actually got the backdrop of San Francisco because Vijay's in San Francisco. So I thought I'd join him as virtually as I could. So during this podcast, as our listeners know, we weave through a range of topics so that our listeners can get to know you, Vijay, more about your journey and your reflections along the way. Now, Vijay, as you'll quickly find out, has a slightly different story because you came to us as a Master's of Accountancy student. You didn't come in as a freshman. So I'll let you tell your story about your, your migration even from India to the United States and then how you got to the pharma school. Absolutely. And it was 99% luck and 1% sort of uh, everything else, I would say, because I was, uh, the, the story is I was already finishing, I finished two years of college in India and went to see an education consultant uh, in the summer during my time off because my brother had just graduated and was thinking about going for his master's degree. And long and short of it is the conversation after an hour led to, hey, you know, while my brother was still trying to figure out what he wanted to do next, the consultant turned to me and said, why don't, why don't you go to the U.S. now? And that way you can, you can finish up your last two years in the U.S. And as I was kind of trying to figure that whole thing out over the next few weeks, fast forward just a couple of months, and I was actually landed in uh, Toledo, Ohio, and uh, started attending undergraduate university as a junior, so already in my third year uh, at uh, University of Finlay in Finlay, Ohio. And uh, that's kind of what got everything started. Um, you know, uh, studied accounting there for a couple of years. And when it was time to graduate, I was kind of debating between, um, you know, taking a full-time job or getting my master's degree in accounting. And uh, interestingly enough, it came down to two universities. One was Miami of Ohio and the other was University of Hawaii. And, when, and although I was at the time, you know, barely 21 years old, um, I um, decided that it was probably better to stay closer to where I had already established some friends and been around for two years in Ohio. And actually, uh, one of my best friends was actually from Cincinnati as well. So a lot of that, along with the reputation that Miami has in accounting, it was uh, at the time, and I'm sure it is even higher now, was in you know one of the top five programs in the country uh, for, for, the, for the master's program. And so I, you know, it kind of... Uh, became an easy decision for me to kind of uh, attend college at Miami. It's a great story to tell. And when I look at your CV, a really impressive CV, you know, you, you had some early career wins with Deloitte and then and at Kellogg and then Bain. Then you've worked for some big brands. You've had some international gigs, a lot around uh, Africa, Middle East and, and Europe. Now you're back to the United States. So tell us your story. It's a fascinating story. And, and I, I think our listeners would really love to hear it. Thank you. You know, I I think the story in a lot of ways starts at Miami of Ohio. 
I, I graduated from Miami. I ended up with a, you know, um, in a unique situation where I had multiple job offers and I was really trying to figure out what it is I want to do. And I remember kind of building out all these spreadsheets and all this detail and I talked to a professor uh, at Miami and he said to me, Vijay, I know this is, you know, seems like a very, uh, the most important decision of your life in terms of where do you want to go and work. But I promise you that when you look back two years from now, it won't nearly, it won't seem nearly as important. And I think that that advice has really stayed with me as I've kind of thought about sort of changes that I've made and things that I've you know done in my uh, lifetime. I started, like you said, at Deloitte, uh, really enjoyed that experience, but decided quite early on that that was not something I wouldn't, didn't want to do accounting for the rest of my life. I uh, decided to pursue an, uh, an MBA at uh, University of Chicago and then started working for Bain uh, in the Chicago office. And Bain did a lot of strategy consulting work. So you kind of, you know, I got uh, visibility to a lot of global and international companies and traveled uh, quite a bit for that role. And uh, about two or three, year, three years into that job, I decided to um, um, uh, join one of Bain's clients out of the West Coast office, which was Nike. And at that time, Nike was kind of uh, still going through a little bit of a turnaround or had, had hit a, they just laid off some employees in 2000, early, late 2001 or early 2002. It was probably an eight or $9 billion company, the only Fortune 500 company in all of Oregon. I'd never been to Oregon my entire life other than when I went to interview, but it just seemed like a, a, a very unique opportunity. And so, uh, you know, the family decided to move to Oregon. Uh, it was a, you know, it ended up being a, an amazing experience for us. Uh, you know, uh, our son was already uh, a couple of years old. Our daughter was actually born there. And, uh, you know, my wife actually also coincidentally worked at Nike at the same time as well. So it was, uh, it was a, a definitely a family affair. And uh, we, got, we got some really amazing, uh, ex, you know, experiences through uh, when we lived there and uh, traveled the world. Um, I, I visited actually most of Latin America and Asia as part of my job there. And ultimately, they posted me in Amsterdam to help run the Central Europe, Middle East and Africa business. Um, that then led me to, after about uh, six years at Nike, I left and uh, moved, actually moved my family to India for personal reasons. And uh, one of my children also to get that uh, India experience, you know, sort of experience what I had uh, grown up in. And uh, I ended up joining the Clinton Foundation in, um, in uh, Delhi and worked there for the next three years. And it was a very unique experience. I, I sort of... Uh, and I remind myself often that that was the first time I actually had the CEO title. Uh, it was for a not-for-profit. It was the it was the midst of a recession. It was uh, very much a turnaround type situation. And a lot of these things have actually stayed with me, even though um, uh, I moved on to other roles as well. And so um, after having done that role for about three years, uh, we moved back to the U.S. and uh, had an opportunity to work for a company called Blue Nile in uh, in Seattle. And I worked for Blue Nile for about four and a half years, and it was a really interesting time. It was an online company that sells diamonds online. Nobody would think that anyone would want buy, a, you know, let alone a $10,000, $20,000 diamond. But um, during my time there, we sold multiple diamonds that were worth half a million dollars and more. Um, so it was it was a it was really interesting sort of experience to uh, 
get completely absorbed into the world of digital and e-commerce, which were kind of relatively speaking still in its infancy and uh, and got that experience and loved it so much. That, but, but I decided that I really wanted to get some brick and mortar experience. I had not done retail, the traditional retail side of things. Um, and that actually is what took me to my, uh, to my experience at Foot Locker. I, I started out as the head of digital at Foot Locker. Um, you know, it was a, over a billion dollar business uh, already and uh, helped sort of uh, grow that business substantially. And uh, as a result of the, of the of that uh, first job, I got promoted to be the CEO of Europe, Middle East and Africa and just spent the last three years uh, living in Amsterdam and, uh, you know, really enjoyed that experience as well. And that was a, a complete shift because the portfolio was almost uh, 75, 80 percent of the revenue came from stores from the 750 owned stores versus the uh, the online business. So uh, really enjoyed that sort of omni-channel experience. I think that the, the red thread that cuts through you know, is the fact that um, I focused a lot of my time on understanding the millennial and the Gen Z generation. So, you know, just because they're very, very relevant to Nike's success, to Blue Nile's success, as well as to Foot Locker's success. And that sort of, um, you know, if nothing else, it uh, it helps me communicate better with my kids, is what I always say. <laughs> it's, it just makes it, uh, you know, um, important to understand how the the the, the younger uh, of, you know uh, people are thinking about uh, the world and how, and what what is important to them, and so that was that became a big part of what I did. And then very recently, about three months ago, I took the job as the chief executive officer at Wish, and uh, it's we are in the midst of a pretty extensive turnaround right now. So I moved to San Francisco and it's, uh, it's you know, I've been blessed with a really, really uh, amazing team and, a, and it's been a, a really fun uh, learning experience so far. So before I go back to the time at Foot and talk a little bit about Wish, what, it, what Wish is and what your aspirations for Wish are. Yeah, I mean, Wish was at one point the third largest platform in the in the western in the you know in the us uh after amazon and ebay so you could buy a lot of different things it's not specific to one category it was not specific to one country so very very global business about you know uh, at its peak 60 percent of the customers were outside of north america uh and you know did uh you know a significant amount of uh, revenue as well and um, I think the aspiration is to kind of bring bring Wish back to where it used to be, and even more. And I think, uh, and uh, for me, I'm a big believer in a second second chances, right? And I think I think I got a second chance, but when I got you know the opportunity, even without very little planning, to come to the U.S. and it completely changed my life relative to kind of the you know first two decades in India. Um, similarly, I think that you know um, I believe a lot of Everybody deserves a second chance. And I think that what's happened with Wish has been, it's been tough over the last uh, 12, 12 months or so. Um, but I think the, the good news is we have a path forward in terms of how we want to kind of connect with our customers, how we want to grow the business and what we want the brand to be longer term. It's a really exciting role. And, and to your point, second chances are great. I want to go back a little bit. When you were CEO of Foot Locker in, in, in the region that you were managing, the dates are important to our listeners from January 19 to January 22 when you were CEO, of course, with the bricks and mortar retail outlet. I mean, I hate, I'm getting tired of asking COVID-related questions, but I think I'm sure you've got some really interesting perspectives 
uh, to share with respect to how what it meant to be a CEO of a brick and mortar retail chain during COVID and what trends you observed through that time. Absolutely, I, I'll never forget. I mean, I think in February I was in New York for a meeting, um, you know, a company meeting. I flew back um, in March. There were already some, you know, some stories about this potential virus starting to spread. And I uh, I remember making even in March a trip to London to look at some new store opportunities for Foot Locker. And uh, I got back, I think it was the 15th of March and, uh, or the 16th of March. And that those 24 or 48 hours, I'll never forget because I was getting multiple calls about, Vijay, I think we should shut down all stores. And I was like, what? What are we talking about? And, and if you were living, you know, like I was at the time in Amsterdam, there really wasn't that much happening. It was really, we have a very big base in Italy. Uh, we have over 200 stores in Italy. And what was happening was it was pretty bad in Northern Italy. And as people had gone on ski vacations to certain parts of Europe, it had spread pretty quickly into other uh, countries, including Austria and Germany and other places as well. So what seemed like a, you know something I was reading about and was very distant and somewhat far away from me at the time, I basically had to make a decision that night on the night, the 16th, you know, receiving information and updates from the team, primarily in Italy at the time. On the 17th morning, we woke up and we decided to shut down all of our stores. Um, and I believe we actually shut down stores in Europe uh, a day or two earlier. And then, it, you know, right after that, the U.S. Uh, shut down their stores as well. Um, but it was it was crazy to think that all of a sudden we had, you know, th tens of thousands of employees all across the continent and and you know they're not allowed to come into work anymore and it was just a you know i think the rest of the the next i would say 10 to 20 days i think they're like a blur because you kind of you're kind of in this emergency situation where you're trying to figure out what to do what to say how to take care of your employees how to take care of your customers what you know what 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 um you know just to, how you're going to just make sure that everyone is safe not just from a you know a family perspective but also from an the employee uh, perspective. So uh, it was a really tough time, I think, but I think like most retailers, uh, we were able to pivot very quickly and move 100% of our sales to online and keep keep that going. And uh, it actually resulted in some pretty interesting innovations um, you know, that we didn't have before in terms of uh, making it easier for click and collect and <clears throat> easier to kind of, you know, uh, make an appointment and pick up your items in the store, even though the store was actually closed. We were one of the best things that we did. And again, you always give, have to give kudos to your employees. But, you know, our many of our employees still wanted to come into work in countries where they were allowed to leave their homes. And we would basically open up the back room and the back door and they were able to fulfill orders online inside the store and put it out for, uh, you know, DHL or UPS or FedEx to pick it up kind of thing. So, so honestly, they kept things going. And we one of the funniest things that happened during that time was, um, you know, it was a big question about what do you do with social media? What do you do with other things? And one of our best campaigns ever in 2020 was actually um, employees. So Putlocker employees wear a striper shirt, it's white and black. And we asked them to make videos of themselves with two or three rolls of tissue paper, toilet paper at home and a basket and they could use anything as a basket like a laundry basket or a basketball hoop or whatever they could find and make you know 10 15 second videos and some of those videos on tiktok and instagram were our you know most well received videos ever so it was just a it was just a fun way to kind of get you know people you know thinking about sort of 
anything besides COVID at the time, and it really worked. And I love the way you've referenced the silver linings. I know I mean, not to trivialise the effect of COVID, of course, but you know the fact that you pivoted and, and you embraced innovations perhaps more quickly than you would have otherwise, and the business probably looks different today than it did before. Um, my question related to that is, what was the overall impact on sales? I mean, I'm sure that at the very beginning, things were a little dire as everything just came to a screaming halt. But how did the two years pan out? You know, ultimately it panned out pretty well. 2020 was down, as you described, but there was a lot of pent up demand, especially for sneakers when customers came back. Mm. So we had some of our record breaking quarters as a company in 2021. And that was uh, that was thanks to, um, you know, some of the pent up demand I talked about. Keep in mind also when the Gen Z generation that, you know, our primary customers, when they couldn't travel, when they couldn't go out for experiences, one of the places where they could still spend money was on on you know uh, highly sought after sneakers. So so I think the demand actually kind of uh, kind of stayed. I mean it was definitely down for the first uh, you know first six months after COVID, but then from there on for the next eighteen months we saw some pretty good tailwind uh, because of the, the the fact that people were spending money on on sneakers over travel and experiences and concerts and things like that as well. And I guess you got lucky too, because as people were working from home, the, the, the dress code kind of changed a little bit as well. None of us had the playbook and we certainly couldn't predict the future, but there's been some interesting outcomes. I want to just pivot a little bit also to talk about supply chain issues. And I'm, I'm sure in the industries that you've been in, that this is probably something front and center. So talk a little bit about some of those challenges and, 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 what you're seeing right now, what you see coming toward us? So, I mean, COVID definitely messed up the supply chains a lot. So even in my old industry, it was a big deal because most of what uh, Nike and Adidas and Puma and anything that Put Locker sells, a lot of that is made in Asia. And when container prices went up from, you know, $2,000 to $20,000, that had an impact on everything. And, you know, I, I remember one of my uh, vendors saying to me, uh, you know, at one point in time that I have more items at sea than I do on land. So I, you know, I don't know when I'm going to get to your product, which, right. So it was just comments like that, that you'd hear. I will say that over time, then people have gotten better and better at kind of solving some of those problems. Uh, we got hit recently at uh, wish because um, uh, the China decided to shut down a couple of cities for sort of Shenzhen, which is a very big base for us uh, when we export products for wish. And, um, uh, also, then it ended up hitting Shanghai. And Shanghai is actually where we have about 200 employees that uh, live and work for us in kind of a, uh, an office environment. So, we, you know, obviously the office was shut down. They're still kind of living at home. But in addition to that, the team banded together amazingly well. So we actually found like third party suppliers and logistics companies that were able to deliver, you know, basic supplies to our uh, employees. So we kind of almost, you know, if it's, it's not daily, but it definitely more than, you know, once a week, we would supply uh, drop off packages for our employees so that they had, didn't have to worry about leaving home. And, and you know, especially with uh, parents who have young kids and things like that. It's been, it's been, you know, anytime we had any kind of COVID shutdowns anywhere in the world, it's been really, really tough, right? It's, you know, it's what happens is it's kind of almost like life goes on and is normal in other parts of the world. And then you're kind of completely restricted and you can't even leave your house. And so uh, just that sort of, I think the big thing that uh, 
you know, I've, you know, uh, been, I, I would say learned as a leader has been the word empathy, right? You have to kind of put yourself in other people's shoes, even though you're not there and you're not experiencing it because everyone is, I mean, I, I have lots of family in India. They went through a really rough time in early 2021, you know, lots of other, you know, places are, have gone through their ups and downs as well. So while, while the, you know, the most important thing has always been on focus on safety, focus on taking care of our, you know, loved ones and our, our, uh, you know, employees at the same time, uh, it's, it's really what you do for each other. You know, that matters. And that's that actually has been, you know, the, the Chinese, the team based in China for Wish has been absolutely amazing over the last six to eight weeks. Well, certainly the images coming out of China have been challenging to, to consider people stuck in, in, their, in their apartments without food. So I'm really pleased about what you're saying. And, and I think, you, you know, what's interesting in your commentary, too, is that and and for the purpose of you know to remind our listeners that COVID has impacted countries differently and then pockets within countries differently, and what I find fascinating is to watch how different countries responded to COVID and now two two plus years later, just to see how uneven the landscape is with respect to our relationship with COVID, how we function in the societies because of COVID. So I'd I'd love it if you could add add to that as well. No, I just, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there's different ways. The optimistic side of me sees it as hey, everybody tried to do the best they can. Uh, the pessimistic side of me looks at it and kind of goes, you know what? It's amazing that with all the education, all the money, all the science, no country in the world actually got it right. Right. So I think, I think sometimes think about it. I think maybe Israel is the one country that got it a little bit more right than others in terms of, you know, the doubling down on the vaccines as soon as they could and staying, trying to stay a little bit ahead of it. But, but again, I mean, whether you're a small country or a big country, a rich country or a poor country, it impacted everyone and it continues to, I think. Yeah, it's, it's been quite, quite a couple of years. So before we move on to your experience, I just want to make sure we lean into Sonia's experience. So you've got a daughter, uh, you've got two children, as you've seen, and Sonia's just finished her first year. So tell us why she chose Miami and the farmer school. Yeah, I, to be honest with you, you know, when my son applied for four and a half years ago or so, you know, um, Miami was still on the list, but he he decided not to uh, go to Miami. My, my daughter had the same decision to make about a year ago or, uh, you know, about 15 months ago or so. And um, what it came down to is that she actually had a very simple criteria. And it, what she was looking for was the best possible undergraduate business school married with the best possible a riding program. So she's an equestrian rider. And so she was looking at schools that were kind of uh, considered the NCAA Division I, NCEA, as they call them, the Equestrian Association Division I schools. Uh, but many of them were actually not as strong from a riding perspective. I mean, I'm sorry, they're strong from a riding perspective. They were not as strong on the business school side of things. And so Miami was ended up being the best mix for her. And, and as she started investigating it, she started getting more, I would say, good news and that's always a good thing. You know, the campus visit went well. She loved the, you know, the culture, the people, the, you know, the reputation of the university. But there's also a facility that's less than 40 minutes or, you know, many hour away from, from Oxford, Ohio, where she can go and compete at kind of what's considered, a, you know, one of the top 10 facilities in the country. So that also made things easier. In fact, she's uh, just started her summer internship and summer break, and she's actually moved an hour outside of Oxford, Ohio for the summer because she wants to compete. Right. So that that's uh, so yeah, so she's 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 loved it so far and she's she's really enjoyed her experience there. 
That's a great story to tell. So we're going to go for a trip down memory lane, and and you know I'm sure your your some of your your experiences are going to be simply different to someone who's done an undergrad degree with us. But I'll take you through different questions as well, and and reflect upon your time. So when you were doing your degree, um, who was your favourite professor, and why? Uh, you know, I used to work for a professor in uh, Hal, and he was it's quite an interesting guy. He was I was a graduate assistant. So I showed up on the first day on campus and um, it was interesting. He said to me, you know, oh, I'm, I'll be right back. I'll meet me in my office. Just go down the hall. It's the last office on the red, on the right. And uh, he he said, uh, so I, I literally just quietly pushed open the door and I couldn't believe what I saw. Like there was paper everywhere. Like it literally, I couldn't even, I, I was scared to stand inside because there was hardly like two feet of uh, space. You know, the, the, the door, from the doorway to his desk, there was like a little walkway, if you will. And there was papers on all sides. And he was just one of those people who just loved to read. And I, you know, got to know him. He'd already been there for like, uh, I think 20 plus years at Miami, uh, teaching in the accounting program. And he just was an amazing person. I think, I think he just was, uh, you know, I got to, uh, when you're a faculty, you're helping faculty, you work for about 10 hours a week. So, you know, with the faculty members and uh, again, given the the space constraints, I felt like I was always sitting, you know, some, somewhere very on top of each other because there's so much other, so many other books and papers and other things in his office. But I got to know him pretty well. And he was really an, an amazing man and a great mentor as well. Yeah, I love it. So what subject did you least enjoy? You know, I <laughs> I studied only accounting and taxes, so I don't have a lot to choose from. I did study some Japanese uh, with the undergraduate students because I was very fascinated by the Japanese culture and the Japanese language at that time and, and a lot of business-wise. Uh, I think what, what China is today was probably what Japanese was, uh, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, and so... Um, um, I, I love my Japanese classes there. Probably the one that I uh, liked the least were the ones dealing with sort of uh, regulations and FASBs and what, you know, all the accounting sort of uh, theoretical stuff that you have to know to pass this, your know, CPA and CPA exams, uh, uh, CMA and CPA exams, which I took both while I was at Miami. But, um, you know, uh, other, it was really, it was, it was a fun group. I mean, honestly, I, I don't have, I can't think of something that I absolutely hated there because it was a small group of only about 10 or 15 people in class. The faculty members were very much, uh, uh, you know, again, another small group of uh, uh, accounting professors. So it was a, it was like a family on, in, a, in a sense. You've mentioned you were GA. Were there other co-curricular activities you were involved in? Yeah, I was actually involved in a lot of uh, things. With it. We had an Asian American Association at the time that I kind of, you know, got very involved with. Uh, there was uh, a lot of uh, just sort of, uh, and I can't even remember the names of some of the clubs now. To be honest with you, it's been so long. But a lot of, a lot of local clubs that we were involved with. I think the one thing I would say, one of my highlights at Miami was um, this, the my last semester at Miami. They were decided to look for a new dean for the business school. And they wanted the search committee to be four faculty members, one undergraduate student, one grad student, and an alumni. And I got lucky enough to be selected as the grad student. And uh, the alumni member at the time was a person by the name of John Smale. John was at the time the chairman of General Motors, and he was the ex-CEO of Procter & Gamble. So for me, being like 20 years old and, you know, or 21 or 22 years old and sitting right next to him 
was just an amazing experience. Like it was just like, and, and we used to have these really long, like four hour meetings where we go through resumes and we did the interviews together and then we had to make recommendations. And I just felt like just sitting there and just watching him. Um, and also it, it was also the very, very senior most faculty um, at, you know, at the pharma school. And so that was, it was an amazing experience, honestly. Well, you'll appreciate this story. So recently um, I was approached to write an endorsement for a book on John Smale. Oh, and, wow. and I had the privilege of reading the book and just to really admire what a great leader he was. And, and, uh, and, and I think the book's about to be published, but it's a great read. It's a really good book. So I love that story. So my next question, are you a morning person or not when it comes to going to class? Did you like getting classes? I'm very there? much a morning person. <laughs> I just like, you know, I was, I was actually in Europe for work last week. And then, you know, like this, this week I've been getting up anytime between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. actually. So <laughs> unfortunately, that makes it really tough. Like, you know, when, when you have a, a work dinner in the evening, I start to uh, really feel it, I guess, in, in some sense. But I'm very much a morning person. I think you uh, might and, be an extreme morning person, Beach. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would that had a little bit more to do with jet lag. But normally I'm I'm usually usually a, a let's call it a between a, a five and a six a.m. type person. Uh, this this uh, travel doesn't always help. So, but uh, but yeah, I, I I definitely do my best thinking, my most you know my sort of alone time thinking, getting certain things done. You know, my to do list. I, it's always the most productive in the first few hours in the morning. Yeah, you and me both. I think. What was your favorite night of the week while you're at Miami? Sorry, which was favorite, favorite night of the week? Did you have a favorite night of the week? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it always used to be. It used to be Thursday nights. It's a, always a good way to start the weekend early. Was always the plan, and uh, even though we all, you know, and I think the I think you get uh, especially in grad school and things like that. I'm not sure if it's all always planned that way, but it feels like the Friday morning classes are always a little bit later too. So it's almost a you get a head start on the weekends, and you, you know a lot of times you you travel or you go someplace, and you know that. So yeah, but I think Thursday nights, from what I remember, were always the the the, the favorites. I, sure. think it, I think it's still the favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Seems so. What was yeah. your favorite building on campus, not in Uptown? Well, remember the school, the Palmer School didn't exist at the time. So all of my classes were in Laws Hall. And that was definitely my my favorite kind of building. And this, I, just, just based on the fact that I spent so much time there. And then the, uh, you know, having come back to campus recently to drop off Sonia, it's it's been interesting to kind of kind of reconnect with the campus, but they used to, you know, and there is a, I can't even remember names now, but international kind of building with all the, some of the international students you go, and then the student union as well is where you spent most of the free time. So those, those would be kind of the, between those three places, I probably spent 90% of my time. Yeah. And they're great, great. So what about Uptown? What was your favorite place to go to Uptown? I don't remember the, <laughs> the the places even to be honest with you, but I remember was it is it Bruno's Pizza? It's, there was a pizza place that was open. There was a there were a couple of things that used to be open really late at night. So one place that would give you like you know serve burgers, and I remember it very distinctly in my mind because in one one of the years when I had a, a roommate, um, my roommate was actually a vegetarian person. And he got so tired of us kind of all being able to eat while he couldn't that uh, he had his first burger. Um, at, at that stall and I and, you know it was like a a, a little uh, almost like a temporary kind of burger kind of place it was not you know so but that's why and then and then the pizza place on Main Street that used to have a long line but it was there weren't that many options in those days I think now the kids are have a lot more options they're spoiled for choice I think that's true so when you look back at any part of your time at Miami what if anything would you have done differently 
You know, I think I would have, I hate to say study less because that's really not good advice to, to a kid, to, you know, the next generation. But I honestly feel like I spent a lot of my time. I still was a, you know, um, in, in every sense of the word, I was a immigrant. I was, I'd only been, when I got to Miami, I'd only been in the U.S. for two years. And, and those two years I'd been as a student. I was a graduate assistant. I was uh, trying to pay my own bills and, you know, trying to figure stuff out. So I was uh, very uh, conservative, I guess, in that sense. So, you know, I was really focused on on studying, on clubs, on leadership, on, you know, you know meeting people on campus. But I also didn't have as much, you know, time or money to really, you know, travel or enjoy the U.S. or or do other things, you know, social activities and things like that. So I think if I tell myself what I would tell myself now is to not take myself as seriously as I did. You know, I think it all sort of, uh, you know, um, it, it always is an adjustment, especially with the international students coming in, um, you know, but uh, you you uh, sometimes maybe focused almost too much on the on the grades and the class and the school while there's so much more to in any university, especially Miami. Well, that's interesting too. And, and, and so my next question is, is there a class that you wish you had taken? With hindsight, is there something you wish you'd taken? You know, I think the biggest thing is I think I I wish I I, I had studied two years of Japanese coming in to uh, Miami. And I knew that when I came to Miami and I signed up for my master's that given the requirements for the course, that I wouldn't be able to take Japanese unless I stayed an extra semester, which seemed like a really tough decision at that time because you kind of, you know, you have the summer in between, you, you're actually even recruiting cycle. So I almost started my job like almost nine months after my classmates and things like that. So it felt like a big, big, um, you know, a pretty big um, difference at that time. But uh, I, th- I wish I could have taken even more of those Japanese classes. I was just getting to the point where I was getting fluent and then sort of, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't take enough of it to, to actually be able to speak it, um, you know, or, or hey, not be hey, able to speak hey, I know you've spent a lot of time in Central Europe, Middle East, Asia, Africa, sorry. Have you um, used the Japanese a lot? No, I did use the Japanese initially when I worked. Nike was a very global company. We had pretty big operations in Japan at that time. And I've done some amount of travel to Japan um, and in the early days. And since then, more recently, have not been able to use it at all. I did try to take Dutch classes when I was living in Amsterdam for three years. It is one of the hardest languages to pick up. And so, I, you know, despite the fact that I put quite a bit of, uh, you know, uh, time into it, I would say my Dutch is probably the equivalent of a first grader or second grader so it's pretty humbling as well but no good good I, I tried to learn Japanese too as a freshman and it was unsuccessful let me just put it that way but, but like you Japan Japan's one of my favorite countries so I'm moving on to the last part of our interview where we I want you to give some advice to our students and I want to take it in two parts so part one um, could you give advice for incoming freshmen as they enter into Miami I mean the the only ad- advice I would have is to you know not stay in your room or not, you know, uh, be limited to what it is your uh, experiences are at Miami, right? I mean, you have so much to offer and so much more to offer since when I was there in terms of, you know, the study abroad programs, there's so many cool things that are happening on campus, there's so many sports, so many activities to get involved with. 
So the most important thing is just to get involved, right? I mean, even if you don't like it, you can pick a different, you know, association or different club or whatever it is the next semester. But the most important thing I think is as of coming incoming freshman is to really just 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 get uh, involved on campus and and you know um, try to try to meet as many people as you can. That that probably be the biggest advice piece of advice. And the to the second group, someone who's been out for a couple of years. Now, what's behind the question? You've touched on it already with some of your answers, but. You know, the idea that careers are, re- are really journeys, aren't they? They're journeys and some have, are very well planned and some are not. But if you, what, what advice would you give someone who's just a couple of years into their first job having left Miami? You know, something that stayed with me, despite the fact that I think my first job was in 1994, right? So almost 30 years ago, um, is the fact that, you know, first of all, Miami prepares their students really, really well. Right. So you learn everything you need to know to be successful in the world. And then but you still have this feeling when you get to your first day at work where you're kind of wondering to yourself. Why am I here? Like, what am I doing? What am I supposed to be doing? Who's going to tell me what to do? You know, that that sort of feeling. And what I always tell people, and I remember that distinctly from myself, um, you know, I uh, there were just a lot of things that happened in my first six months in my job. But, but the, the the feeling that I felt throughout was this feeling of, you know, am I prepared for what I'm going to do? What, and how do I do something? Somebody asked me to do something and say, oh, do I know how to do that? And there was always this, a certain amount of, I would say, um, self-doubt even, you know, in terms of, you know, even though I was really well prepared and even though I knew how to do my job, um, the truth is I always kind of was, I had that sort of certain amount of nervous energy um, around me. And I always kind of think that that's actually a good thing to kind of, uh, remember because as you move on, you feel like you feel like you're more successful and your confidence level builds, which is a very good thing. But I think sometimes going back to that emotion, that feeling and reminding yourself of day one, you know, what did, what did it feel like? What are the first three months feel like? What are the first six months feel like remembering kind of a, you know, a move you had to make or, a or, a you know, or, or, or you're sitting there trying to figure out what, you know, what somebody asked you to do. And it took you hours to even just understand what it is, the, you know, the question was, or forget, let alone the answer. Right. So I, I always kind of remind people that, that, that only, you only experience that once. So because even after you go back to like, you know, if, we, if I went back to my MBA and I then went back to work again, that was still not the first time I ever went to work. So you only have that true feeling of working, you know, for the very first time in a full-time job, you typically only have that once. I think, Cherish that, package that, remember that, because that will come in very handy every time you come to a fork where you have to make a decision between, you know, going left or going right. And I think it's just it's just something. I think that's the. It's almost like using your your gut and your experiences to help educate you in terms of who you are, but what decisions you are right for you. Right? I think that's just an important time to reflect on. That's really special advice. I think it's fantastic advice. That vulnerability we feel, that heightened sense of awareness, the, the nervous energy it produces, I think there's something important about that to your point that we need to, to package and capture. So I've come to the close and, and I just want to thank you so much, Vijay, for your gift of time to allow us to record this podcast. One defining characteristic of the Pharma School of Business is just how engaged our alumni are and how willing they are to continue to find ways to support the school, its students, faculty, staff and other alumni. So thank you, Vijay, and go well as you continue your journey beyond High Street. 
Thank you so much for having me. And I hope the next time we meet will be face-to-face in Oxford, Ohio. Looking forward to it. 